In today's episode, we pick up where we left off with the prophet Jonah and chapters 3 and 4. After his ordeal at sea, Jonah, freshly vomited ashore by the great fish, finally obeys God's command, and he preaches repentance in Nineveh. To his surprise, the wicked city heeds his word and turns from evil, sparking widespread repentance. But instead of rejoicing, Jonah becomes angry with God. Why is he so bitter and displeased with God's mercy? Well, we'll talk about it today as we finish up the book of Jonah. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Thursday, October 19th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church here in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. You can learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. Well, my guest for this morning is the Reverend Nabil Noor, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Hartford, South Dakota, and fourth vice president of the LCMS. Good morning, Pastor Noor. Welcome back to the program. And a blessed morning to you and our beloved saints who are privileged and honored and blessed to hear this message via the medium of the internet or live radio. Thank you for hosting me and allowing me to be with you and bring God's word that it may reign in our hearts and in our lives. Well, it is a great pleasure to have you here, and I'm actually very thankful that I have you as my guest. As we wrap up, Jonah, I'm interested in hearing your perspective on the whole thing. And uh, I, yeah, there's really nothing to do but get started. So would you mind beginning our time together with prayer? Certainly. Please join me in a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God, in mercy, in compassion, in love for all of your creation, you sent your servant Jonah, who means dove, into the land of the Assyrians to bring the word of the living God to call them to repentance. We thank you for what you have done, producing in these people repentance and gave them forgiveness. Bring that same repentance into our fallen and darkened heart and cause us to turn away from the evil that is bestowed in our hearts because of sin. On account of Christ, use your powerful word to break through our hard hearts and bring more people into your kingdom. Through the living Christ, we humbly ask this. Amen. Amen. Well, brother, I, uh, I'm going to hand it over to you, just and asking you the question, why don't you catch us up? with where we've been so far. Jonah is only four chapters long, and we spent yesterday talking about the first two chapters. But despite its brevity, it is chock full of imagery and symbolism and typology pointing forward to our Lord and Savior and the message of the, and the need for repentance and casting out bitterness. There's so much great stuff in here. But I tell you what, for those who might have missed yesterday's episode, would you mind catching them up on the narrative so far? Absolutely. Jonah is simply four chapters. As my colleague and dear friend, Dr. Reed Lessing said, there are 689 words. But like you said, they are filled with 
images, ups and downs, roller coasters, storms, a big fish, um, swallowed in the grave of a fish for three days, vomited out and sent into a city that takes about three days to go across. And the man who has been asked to go into this Assyrian territory is not happy about it, so he runs away. And God, of course, um, tells him, this is your call. I'm sending you. And the whole summary of this book, dear brother and beloved saints, is to see God's compassion for all of humanity. I'm so thankful that I am today the host because we need to do one thing as we talk about this. The comparison of Jonah going to the Ninevites or to the Assyrian capital is if God asks me today to go into the Gaza Strip where Hamas is, and the one that is doing such evil atrocities in the world. And if you think that is bad, we do have historians who speak of this um, atrocities. Dr. Erika Blitbrudu wrote in the Assyrian history is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. And this is taken from the grisly Assyrian record of torture and death. And so what we are seeing today on the um, television in my home country of Israel, as well as in the Gaza Strip, it is literally the same, if not worse. And yet we see God's compassion is moved to save people because God does not desire, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Second Timothy, he does not desire the death of man, but that all might come to the knowledge of Christ and be saved. This is the whole story of Jonah in Hebrew, or Jonah is God calling sinners to repentance. And amazingly, these sinful beings truly repent. And who is pouting and who is mad? Jonah. So let us go and swim with him in the water that he was at so that we may glean the wisdom that is revealed to us in this wonderful, godly book. Yes, and I agree. And for those who may be listening um, anachronistically, that is, you're not listening to it live or on the day, and I don't know what the future holds, but um, there currently is a, a war ongoing between uh, Israel and the Hamas terrorists, and uh, it's very bitter uh, right now. And it, of course, it has been for quite some time. So even in the future, that may apply. Our, our honored guest was born in Nazareth. Isn't that correct, brother? That is correct. I was born so, in Nazareth, and, and I lived in Haifa, uh, right on the slopes of Mount Carmel, <clears throat> and migrated to the U.S. in 1972, but I go back every year. So my Hebrew is very well. And interestingly enough, when I was translating, and by the way, there are 326 words in these two chapters that we're going to discuss. And in this text, the word Hamas is right dab in the middle of chapter 3. It is. Yep. Where they repent of their sins or Hamas, the violence that they are doing. 
Yeah, that is interesting wordplay there with Hamas meaning violence in Hebrew. But, you know, I but yeah, I, I, I also thought about this connection between, you know, the Israelites and, of course, the Hamas. And this whole idea of sending Jonah into Nineveh is very much like sending, you know, you yourself or some other prophet into the midst of Hamas to call them to repentance. And, um, of course, I mean, really, that needs to happen. Of course, a call for repentance needs to happen within Israel and within the United States of America and Iran and everywhere else. We all should repent. But I love how, and and you're kind of known for this, and it's a good thing, but I love how you made sure people understood that the overarching message is about God's mercy, his desire for all people, even those in the capital city of, of, uh, of an empire that's out to destroy his own people. He's desiring that they come to the knowledge of the truth. So last time we were together, we ended with these words. And Yahweh spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Picking up there with chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of Yahweh came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of Yahweh. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Pausing right there at verse 5. Brother, take us through it. Let me begin by saying, number one, this message is not for Hamas and Israel only. It is for us. Why do I say that? Because sometimes we think we deserve better than others. You know, like we, I I hear people wipe Hamas off the face of the earth. Fine, they are violent, true. But I am no different than they are because I'm a sinful man and I need to repent of my ways. Secondly, I would like to go, you started with verse 11 in the Hebrew, but I think it's an important thing to see the salvation. In chapter 2, verse 10 in the Hebrew, um, what do you call it, in the Hebrew text, that the Lord said, um, he called Jonah, literally uses um, the name of Jesus that he learned through the Torah, that is the Hebrew text for the Old Testament, that um, he is the salvation of Yahweh. That is Jesus. And this is the answer to all of our problems. And this is why Jesus speaks to Jonah a second time. He does it in chapter 1, and now in verse 1, the word of the Lord. So when we think of the word of the Lord, think of God's uh, sending Jesus to speak with Jonah a second time, saying to him, get up, move, get going, go to Nineveh. Remember, this is the capital of the Assyrian people who were known for filleting people alive, And they would broadcast this by putting pictures out there like we see today in literally in Gaza. The same things is happening over. And then he preaches the greatest sermon in the Hebrew. It's only a few words. All he says simply, 40 more days 
and you're going to be destroyed. Now, if you and I could preach like this, brother, and we have 120,000 people repenting, we would do wonderful in the ministries of which God has called us. Two things I want to highlight. Number one, you and I are the messenger of God. We do not change what we proclaim. We speak the truth in love in spite of offending people. That's number one. And number two, and this is really important, God's word has power. It is efficacious. It will never come back to us empty. And so when, when God says to Jonah, Jonah, get up and go and preach, and what does he do? He just goes reluctantly, and he says, 40 more days, and then a miracle happens, a change of life. They repent, and we'll get to that here shortly, but the emphasis on this word, the powerful word of God will cut to the heart, and it will change us from sinners to saint, from being blind to being able to see the mercy and the compassion and the love of Christ for me, the sinner, just like he does for the Ninevites of old, and just he does for the Hamas. Why did he send the word, emphasis on the word, the word made flesh, so that he become the atoning sacrifice for all of the world, Assyrians, Babylonian, Palestinians, even the ISIS people and the Hamas people, he sent them, he sent him so that he may atone for them and calling them to repentance. Only through Jesus is there hope. Only through Jesus there's forgiveness. Only through Jesus there is life. You can do everything in this world and you think you are making progress, but without Christ at the helm of your heart, there is no hope, there is no life, there is no forgiveness. And it is something that we really must be true as we speak the truth in love from the pulpit in our Bible studies and in our daily conversations. People need to know the truth. We are no better than Hamas. I'm a sinner just like they are. The only difference is I, by the Holy Spirit's power, have repented. And so have you and acknowledged our sinfulness. And daily we call upon the Lord and Savior to forgive us. And this is what you have today. Jonah goes into the, into the city, he goes one day, and he begins to cry out. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be what? Wiped out. The Hebrew word, nefechet, to wipe out, to be completely gone, overthrown, destroyed, whatever image you want to see in this picture. And you have that, and then, wow! Then we jump into verse 5. The yetmino, this is the word, the root word is amen, which we say at the end of the prayer. The yetmino, and they believed all the people of Nineveh in God, the plural, the Elohim, 
Ve'yekri'u, and they proclaimed uh, a fast. Now, isn't that amazing? These barbaric people having come in touch with the word, their hearts have been changed. And we are told, and what an image. I grew up in this kind of image where um, people wail or put on black. I haven't seen people put dust on their uh, heads, but I've seen them pull their hair or beat their chest because I've been to funerals where these things happened. And they, uh, in here, of course, they put on sackcloth uh, from the greatest to the least, from the oldest to the youngest. They are all dressed with mourning clothes. They realize the severity of the proclamation, the charisma, the message, the hope that we have. And this is really, I mean, we are just getting into this wonderful mesmerizing text. It is full with imagery, like you said. Just envision 120,000 people walking in the streets of Sioux Falls or New York or Chicago, rather than protesting, carrying sorrowful hearts on their sleeves and in their action and re repenting and believing that salvation only comes from God. I'd like to ask a little bit about the message that God gave Jonah to give. So the message as we read it in the English translation is yet 40 days, and you've been saying 40 more days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown, destroyed, or whatever. Is there anything in the context of even just those words or, or elsewhere in this passage that makes this conditional? And the, and the reason why I mean is, is the message God is going to destroy you unless you repent? Or is the message, God is going to destroy you, and then the people just have the idea that they should repent? And the reason why I ask is because, as we know, God will relent in this disaster. We're getting ready to read that. Um, but my question is, you know, does that make Jonah a false prophet? Because what he proclaimed did not come true. God relented mercifully. Uh, how do we, how, how can we understand that? Repeat the question. I'm not sure that I understand you correctly, please. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to read a few verses, and then I'll repeat the question. So okay. uh, we're going to start with verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but... But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10, which is what I was speaking of, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. That ends verse 10. It also ends chapter 3. So my question was, you know, some have suggested that, you know, since Jonah prophesied something that failed to happen because God relented, then doesn't that make him a false prophet or does it make him a false prophet? We know from Deuteronomy 18.22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. 
the prophet has spoken it presumptuously. We know from the narrative that God called him. We know from the narrative that he's a true prophet, and we know from the narrative that God relented. But I'm saying, how do we understand how he goes out there and proclaims a message that doesn't happen? And is there anything in the text that suggests that it is a is a, a conditional, like it's going to be destroyed unless? That's what I'm asking. As I look at the Hebrew text, and, and I'll read it, and it says, Vayomer And he said, um, only od, uh, yet, Arbaimium, 40 days, and so, excuse me, so all he is saying, and he said 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed, overthrown, or obliterated. Context-wise, we don't know, and we are not privy to all of the other things that Jonah had said. The Holy Spirit did sure. not allow him to write that, and I don't want to read anything in the text that I'm, I cannot induce or say this is exactly how it is. What I do say, um, Jonah, and we know that from the context, remember the three C's I talked to you the last time about. Context is king, culture is queen, and Christ is the center. So we got to take the context here as well as the culture. Uh, I don't know if, they, if uh, Jonah needed to tell them of the destructive power that's going to be upon. They understood because he's coming from a different place. He would have had a different clothing on coming into this place and proclaiming in the name of Yahweh. He walked in the city, they would recognize him, and he begins to speak. So the context itself does not really reveal that much more except these are the words of truth. Now, anybody who says, he is a false prophet, does not know the whole story because God binds us to specific parameters, but he never binds himself to specific parameters. If that helps you grasp why I'm saying this, God has the right to change his mind. I may expect him to change his mind, but that may not happen if that's not his will. What God asked Jonah is to go and proclaim the word. That's all he told him. And if they don't repent, we know that because uh, otherwise the destruction of the city will take place. And Jonah was faithful. He proclaimed the word. And we know that later on as we come to it, he did not want to go. When we get to chapter 4, because he said, I knew you were compassionate in the Hebrew, rachum v'chesed, you are full of compassion and long-suffering, okay? And so he, he is speaking these words reluctantly because even as he speaks it, he knows the kind of God he has. And he tells us later on, this is why I really didn't want to go, because I knew who you are and what you have done and what you want to do. Does that help answer your question? Oh, sure. Well, I was just posing it out there as a foil for the audience mostly, because I think we can also look at this and see that um, whenever God's warning goes out, there is sort of this inherent, um, I guess, warning about it that it's, it's, it's almost always conditional in the sense that, that God wants people to come 
to faith. God does not want to destroy people. He does not want to destroy the earth. He does not want people to destroy themselves. He wants them to come to him. So that's sort of the uh, emphasis that I was trying to... Uh, Let me to, ask uh, to... you a question for the benefit of our people, if I may. Why do you get up on Sunday morning and you proclaim the word? Why do you, as a brother pastor, a colleague of mine in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, why do you get up every Sunday and you proclaim the word and you do all that prep work? Why do you do that, brother? Well, I think we would all want to say that we do no, no, it because we— No, 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 I don't we... want all. I want Phil. I want you. I want to talk about you personally. Well, me personally, because I genuinely yes. desire Why do that people— you get up and preach the Word? Well, because I genuinely desire that people come to the knowledge of the truth. I share Thank God's you. will in that sense. You and I are post-resurrection reality. Jonah is pre resurrection reality, although he had that resurrection because he was vomited on the third day, which Jesus compares himself to Jonah, okay? Jonah had not seen Jesus suffer and die. You and I, by faith, have seen that, and we know the outcome. At this moment in history, and context is king again here, we see what um, he's envisioning. You and I um, get up in the pulpit and do our homework and prep work, first and foremost, because God has called us to be his mouthpiece. I don't get up on the pulpit because I like to be in the front. No. I get to do this because, said Nabil, I have called you to be my servant. Preach the word in season and out of season. Call them to repentance. That's what you do every Sunday. That's what I do. And this is a major responsibility. And I often tell my saints, every time I step in the pulpit, I think this is my last sermon I will ever preach. Why? Because I don't know if I'll have another opportunity to speak about life and death issues. And so it's very important to understand Jonah may have never had another opportunity. Even though he went reluctantly, God still used him in spite of him. God uses you, Phil. God uses me in spite of us as we proclaim his word, and his word will never come back empty. Well, I, I know at least a couple hundred parishioners that would agree with you that the Lord uses, <laughs> works in spite of me, not because of me. I can tell you that. But I tell you what, Amen right now, though, that. we should take a break. So, folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor Nora and I will pick back up where we left off. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. 
To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back, dear listeners. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, your host, and with me this morning is the Reverend Nabil Noor, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Hartford, South Dakota, not too far from me, and fourth vice president of the LCMS. Now, we've been walking our way through Jonah, and I hope you've been finding our conversation as as lightning as I have. Now, remember, if you have any feedback or questions or perspectives to share on Jonah, please don't hesitate to reach out. Of course, you're always welcome to call into the studio. We'll actually put your question out on the air, uh, 1-800-730-2727. Or you can reach me via email at pastorboo at gmail.com if that's more your style. You can also find me on Facebook. Send me a message there. I usually have it open while we're on the air. So if you want to send me a message, I might be able to get it out in time to, uh, to answer it uh, on the air. Now, Pastor, before the break, you asked me about why I do what I do, and you affirmed that we both do what we do because God has called us to this noble task. Now, you're always so generous to share your background and heritage, so I want to share a little bit of mine with you and our listeners. Um, growing up in the South, I knew of so many preachers who seemed to regard Jonah as an example of what it looks like for God to call people to ministry. And what I mean by that is, you know, we have the culture of testimonies down south and in the Baptist churches and non-denominational churches, and people would talk about their conversion experiences, and preachers would often talk about how they came to ministry. And their stories were often Jonah stories. In fact, it almost seemed like you couldn't hear someone's story unless they told you that, yes, God called me to be a preacher, but I resisted him for so long, but he finally, you know, showed me the light or finally forced me into it, or I hit rock bottom and he made me do it, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I can tell you that that's not my experience. I didn't experience a Jonah moment where I felt like I had to run away from the calling of the Lord. I uh, was eager to be prepared for ministry, and um, even as a second career guy, happy to do it. Um, now, since then, of course, we've had our plenty of struggles, but the point is Jonah is not to be imitated or even to be proud of, in my opinion, although people may experience that where they resist God's call. Uh, but really, the, the point of Jonah is about, as you said, not Jonah being front and center, but rather God's mercy. And I, I think that's sort of the attitude of pastors is that most faithful pastors don't want to be front and center. They want to, in fact, I'm introspective. I'm not a very extroverted person. And so being front and center is very uncomfortable for me, but we do it because we do love God's people and we share God's will that we want them to come to the knowledge of truth. And sometimes that proclaiming of the knowledge can be a little less compassionate than it needs to because we get hyper-focused on making sure people are hearing the truth. But I think what we learn from Jonah is that even a, a preacher who has resisted God, well, God's going to work through him, and his compassion is going to rule the day. Thank you for sharing that, Phil. I really I appreciate that. One of the things that bothers me about all of those testimonies, the emphasis is on the man. Exactly. Um, which is it's not the key element. You and I 
or servants. God does not need me. He does not need you. He could do different things, right? And yet he, he uses us in spite of us. That's one of my favorite uh, words of proclaiming the gospel. There's nothing special about me. I'm nothing. People ask me where did I come from. I say from Nazareth, and I use, and I quote normally John chapter 1, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And I said, <laughs> yes, only one thing, only and it's one. not me. Okay? It isn't me. Don't focus on me. I'm just a servant in God's hands. I work with Jesus, okay, to get his message out because he has called me. But thank you for that. I really appreciate it. I would like to go to chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 6 for just a moment. I'm looking at the Hebrew, and, and you translated it, I believe, and it came to him, the voice. I don't have the English in front of me, so I'm going through the Hebrew here. Um, how did the, the opening of verse 6 begin? The, in the ESV, the, it the says... The message came the, to the king. How did it Yeah, come? the word reached or had reached. Right, okay. So in the Hebrew, the word veyaga, while consecutive um, of naga, it's almost like somebody touched the king with the word in his ear. It isn't just like a microphone. It's like somebody shoved him that touched him and said, hey, this is really important. you got to pay attention to this because it says veyaga hadavar el melech Nineveh. The, the word touched. We can translate it, it came, which is fine, but it really has a strong word. And then he arose from his throne, from the seat that he was sitting, and he um, laid aside his uh, garment that he wore so highly, uh, and then he covered himself in sackcloth and sat down in ashes, and he cries out, the word za'ak, is to scream like in agony, like a woman giving birth. That's the Hebrew word, vezaak, vezaak. And he screamed or hollered and made this announcement and then saying, in Nineveh or throughout all of Nineveh, I will make this decree or this statue or this proclamation and um, tell all the people uh, saying, that man and beast, uh, cattle or herd or flock, they should neither uh, eat or drink anything um, from the morning till the evening. And then all of the people cover themselves. All the And here's what's interesting. I, I mean, the imagery that I get in my mind is I want to laugh can you see all of the animals, all the sheep, all the oxen, all the dogs, all the cats? Everything is covered with sackcloth and ashes. And they, and they cried out, this is in verse 8 in the Hebrew text, and they cried out to Elohim. And by the way, in the Hebrew text, the, the word Elohim for God, at least in this 689 words, 326 in the two chapters I'm dealing with, it's mentioned 39 times, okay? More so than Jonah. The book is not about Jonah. It's about the graceful and compassionate God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we have um, in verse 8, 
a very important Hebrew word, Yeshuvu, and they turn. Literally, that is another way to repent. Like you're heading north, all of a sudden you're heading south. You direct your path and you have that aspect. And everyone turned from the evil and here is the Hebrew word that is used right now in the Gaza. Hamas, the Hamas, the evil, the violence, the wickedness, the unrighteousness. And they repent or they turn around from that. Rather, can you envision what would happen in Gaza today if Hamas would say, okay, we are no longer going to destroy life. We are no longer going to kill the Israelites. We are no longer going to be bombers or suiciders. We are going to walk humbly before God. And this is what you have in this one beautiful verse. They turn from the violence that is before them. And then they go on with a question mark. Perhaps if we do these things, this is the... Uh, propositional probably here, mi yoda, who knows, or who can tell if we turn, uh, Yeshuv, he, that is God again, if he will turn venacham to have compassion or to relent, and again we have Yashav Mecharon, from his fierce anger, and the Hebrew word the anger of the Lord has reached his nostril. Mecharon afo, the fierce anger that reached his nostril. Velo neaved, noaved, excuse me, we will not perish. What a wonderful example of humility. They are praying to God. They're asking him to do that and to communicate, um, to do this so that uh, they are empowered by the gospel to say, Lord, we can't do anything. If you so desire, help us in this position. And so they are doing this in the hope. Now, they're not certain yet, but they are hoping that he would relent. The same word that they use to shuv in the Hebrew, to repent or to turn around, they are asking that God would do that in verse 9 as well. And then here comes the gospel. It oozes out, just like it oozes out of the cross and the side of Jesus. Elohim, And the Lord saw it, uh, their deeds or their works or their activities that they turned, again, the Hebrew word shavu, turn away from their ways, uh, the evil way and the Hamas way. And God uh, relented upon their work to do what he said he was going to do. It is a beautiful gospel center that God is merciful. God is Hanan, compassionate, gracious. The Hebrew word chesed, it is hard for me to translate because there's no specific word to translate into the English. We can translate it compassionate, gracious, merciful, all of these words, because he does this like nobody else does, because they um, repent. And what is interestingly, when we talk about he saw, God sees into the heart.
God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, and he relented of the disaster. And you talked about the chesed, chesed of Yahweh, loving kindness, mercy, all those, you know, concepts. Well, let's see how Jonah responded to this great mercy of God, starting with chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to Yahweh, and he said, Oh, Yahweh, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Yahweh, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And Yahweh said, Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now Yahweh, God, appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and he said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And Yahweh said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And that ends the entire book of Jonah. So back up to the top of four, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, right? So, you know, God's nose and nostrils quit burning, but Jonah's began to burn. What bitterness, what... what uh, what a ridiculous, it's almost comical in the way that Jonah acts. And yet, brother, I think if we reflect on this a little deeply, we might realize that we've behaved this way too. Please take us through this. Do you remember when I began by saying, you and I do not deserve what Hamas is getting today or how ISIS, you know, to be wiped out because we think we are better, okay? Right. And this is what we are seeing, Jonah's anger at what? He's not angry that the Ninevites repented. He is literally angry as God, at God's compassion. The Hebrew beyara comes from the root word ra'a, to be evil or wicked. So he was so infuriated about God that um, he just, just really... Uh, the word Yahar, literally, he's, he's fuming, another word to say. And uh, then he prayed to the Lord in verse 2. He prays to the Lord and said, Don't I, didn't I tell you, Lord, this is why I didn't want to come over here. This is why, because I knew who you are, right? I know what you're going to do. This is why I ran away from going to Tarshish, because this is in verse um, 2 right now, still at the end of 2. For I knew, um, I know 
that you are El, God, Hanun, merciful, compassionate, Verachum, again, double, uh, when the Hebrew, when they speak, they want to emphasize, they want to make it a megali statement or a, of an important, they repeat the word, Hanun Verachum, uh, gracious and compassionate, uh, gracious or merciful, Erech Afim Verav Chesed. You are slow to anger, and the Hebrew word again, afim, normally that is the steam has not his, uh, reached his nostril, verav, humongous amount of chesed. This is the Hebrew word, loving kindness, gracious, compassionate. And then he comes back again, venechem, and you um, relented from these things because you did not want to do the evil. And so his complaint is not that the Ninevites relented. He's complaining against God. Why are you doing this? If you save these people, then my people are going to be judged uh, for worse. And so he is saying to God, you shouldn't be like this. And of course, anytime we try to muddle with God's account of grace, we are blowing things out of perspective because we always think we are better. I deserve to be saved, but they deserve to go to hell. And boy, this text here in this portion of the word of God, he says, no, 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 no. I show compassion to all of humanity. And if you remember in Genesis chapter 12, God told uh, Abraham that he's going to give him uh, great blessings. And one of them is that all the nations will come to be blessed by him and the remnant is still all of this is happening right now so that the true word of God will come into the world and there will be a remnant so that the Messiah would come and he will truly show compassion and chesed and chanun and rachum he will show mercy and graciousness and compassion and he did from the cross when he cried father forgive them this is what you have here this is I wish we had three more hours to dig into these words. <laughs> I really do. And, um, and then he is so angry. He says, I wish I was dead. You know, I, I, I lament at reading these words. But you see Jonah in Hamas, for example, in the Gaza Strip. If all of the atrocities and they have repented and now they're going to go free. And he's saying... Why is this? Am I worth even doing this? But this is where we really must understand. We can never compare ourselves to the grace and love and compassion of Jesus. It's beyond our comprehension. How he looks at us and how he sees things is completely different than how we look at people. We want people to be eradicated, wiped out. My biggest phrase that I hate to hear when I hear somebody says, I wish they go to hell. And I say, brother, sister, you don't mean that because that's total separation from God. And this is why God shows compassion because he does not want them to be in hell where there is no salvation, there is no forgiveness, but there's gnashing of teeth. I know that when I was, um, I had a guest pastor once, many years ago when I first started, and my guest pastor was there because I was uh, picking up my child at the hospital, actually, after spending some time in the NICU. 
But anyway, he preached for me because I wasn't able to come, and in his sermon, he used a couple illustrations talking about the radical love of God, and he had said, and he mentioned a few uh, very famous dictators from history, and he said if these people had repented then um, and put their faith, hope, and trust in God despite the atrocities, that, that they could be saved too. And I remember when I returned, uh, people were very upset with the guest pastor, and they let me know about it, of course, instead of him. But the point is, um, that's kind of the idea. You look at people who do wickedness, evil, the evil of the Assyrians, the evil of the Hamas, the evil of Hitler, the evil of other um, ridiculously um, inhumane uh, people who have done things throughout history. And yes, they deserve death and hell, but as you pointed out, so do we. And so to wish death and hell upon other people is to be like that unmerciful servant who doesn't think that his debt was all that bad, or to be like Jonah, who says, I would rather see my enemy destroyed than to see them saved and repent. And so when we look at some of the evil actors in the world today, those who are you know, maybe egregiously and publicly evil, it should be our desire not for their destruction but for their salvation. At least that's what I hear you saying, and and if that is the case, that's certainly what I would agree with. I want to say amen to what you have said, because we always think I am better than somebody else. I deserve this. But in God's economy of grace, what you and I get is what we don't deserve. So the way I, I put this in a way that people can understand it, grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve, and this is what we see God doing right here. He's letting His grace flow from His pierced heart, as well as He's giving mercy to them, even though they should not be getting mercy. And then, of course, the final uh, portion of this picture is God raises His plans for one day to give comfort to this man. And notice um, even though twice in this sentence, uh, so this chapter, Jonah says, I wish I would be dead rather than alive. And um, God turns us around. He says, why are you angry? And then so God, and he waits to see what's going to happen. And then God gives this plant and it grows and brings shade in the middle of the desert. And man, he is happy as can be. And the next day, wham, it's gone. And he is angry again. And now he's blaming God. Why? And then God said to him, why are you angry? You didn't do anything. How much more should I take care of the people? And ironically enough, in the Hebrew, he even has the bahimot, which is the animals. I mean, this is kind of like a drop out of nowhere that God even has compassion on the animals of those of you who love cattle and dogs and cats and birds of every kind. God has compassion. And this reveals to us what the Apostle Paul says, that all of creation groans to be delivered from the sinful life that has come upon us. This is really something that is so very important for us. God can never be measured by a human standard in any way. No way can we measure to God's kindness. 
We cannot comprehend the mind of God or who can give him a counsel. Why does he do what he does? Simply because he is God and I am not. Simply. And so we give thanks to the Lord that he has compassion on the Ninevites, the people of Hamas, ISIS, Hitler, Mussolini, myself, and you, dear brother, mm-hmm. because we don't deserve it. But only so for true. the sake of Christ do we have what we have. That is so true. And it is interesting, you talked about the last word there, which is actually the last word of the whole chapter, and our book even, and that is the animals, livestock, cattle, beasts, however you want to translate it. And, and that really relates back to that odd image earlier where even the animals were to fast according to the king's command. Even they were to be clothed in sackcloth and ashes. And, um, and even it says that they might call out. Now, I'm sure that refers mostly to the humans, but it does beg the question about, you know, the animals and uh, in place in creation. And it's just this final irony that Jonah is much more angry about a plant than he is about the people, but he doesn't care about the people. Do you even at least care about the animals? He doesn't. And so this sudden conclusion, though, let's be honest, brother, it leaves us in a lot of suspense. You know, did Jonah change his attitude? If he's the author of the book, is that sort of telling people he wants them to know the story? We don't, we don't really know. And I know it doesn't say, and you hate to speculate, but uh, with two minutes left, I'll give you half of that to just sort of give me your thoughts on how well, it is. Let ends. me just remind you again, the name Jonah is a spirit, or a dove, excuse me. And I would rather focus on the God of salvation who has mercy and compassion on us. When we try to elevate ourselves above others, we reduce the grace of God because we think we deserve it. What you are seeing here, literally, the true statement of Jesus when he said, for God so loved the world. Now the Greek word for the world is the cosmos, the whole universe, trees, animal, and plants. And so God loves all of that. This is why he created Adam and he even gave him the garden. And this is why Jesus, the second Adam, came to correct and became the sin bearer and promises a new and better garden where the trees will live forever. They'll have, uh, the leaves will be medicine for all the years of life. And in that place, there will be no violence. There will be no Hamas. There will be no Ra'ah. There will be no wickedness or violence, not even death. Now, why did God, uh, the Holy Spirit, not allow us to know more? Because the focus should not be on Jonah or to use this, as you stated, as an example for us, but to keep our eyes on the place where hope can be found. That is only in Christ crucified and risen. That's what our hope, this is what our future is secure. Not because Jonah did this, this is what we are to do. This is not just a way to be an example for us of how to live. If that's what you're getting out of this lesson, out of this narrative, out of this teaching, you are mistaken. You are to look at God who pours upon you compassion and grace by the ton loads, neither you nor I nor our um, listeners, 
uh, ever will receive this because we deserve it, but simply because God is gracious and compassionate. He is full of chesed, and he is slow to anger. And so as we conclude this here, please focus not on me as a teacher, not on your host, Philip, but on the Messiah who gives salvation to all people. And those who do not repent, they will receive the due reward that is theirs. But that's not for me to decide. That's up to God to decide. We can always count on my guests to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. And for that, we're very grateful. It's the Reverend Nabil Noor, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Hartford, South Dakota. Thank you, pastor, for being on the show. It's my pleasure and God's richest blessings be with you and take into your heart the blessings of the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen. Now, folks, we're moving right on since we've just finished up Jonah. Tomorrow we'll be opening up the Gospel of Mark. So beneath the fast-paced action of Jesus' ministry in Mark's Gospel lies, of course, a profound message. We are all in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. The Gospel of Mark wastes no time in launching into the life and ministry of Jesus, introducing us in this first chapter to John the Baptizer. Also, Jesus is whisked off into the wilderness, compelled by the Spirit, where he'll undergo temptation by Satan. That's what we'll talk about tomorrow. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.